Welcome to The Rich Report, a podcast with news and information on high-performance computing. Today, my guest is James Coomer from DDN. He is a VP for product management at the company. James, welcome to the show today. Hello, hello. Thanks, Rich, for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Well, well, thanks for coming on, James. You know, I thought this would be a good time prior to SC to kind of catch up with DDN, see what's going on. And I understand you have a, a talk here about the infinite memory engine. Yes, yes. We've started calling it IME to avoid uh, filling our mouths full of syllables. Um, <laughs> and IME is now 12 months down the road, at least, into production. And we're just coming out with a new release uh, prior to supercomputing. Okay, well, great. Well, I've, I've brought your slides up. Why don't we start with that, and we'll do a Q&A at the end. Right, so IME, Infinite Memory Engine, uh, we've been developing this for about five years now. So it's, um, it's quite a sophisticated software product. Um, and what we're really doing is bringing your high-performance computing storage and applications into the Flash era in A, a sophisticated, and B, quite a heavyweight way. So there's going to be two aspects I'm going to talk about with IME. One is its nature as a flash cache, which gives you a new way of creating uh, different economics for your solutions. And the other aspect is the fact that it deals with IO in a different way. And, you know, we've got multiple IO patterns. I mean, we deal with this all the time at DDN, and I think most HPC people are very familiar with different IO patterns. Um, I've just picked out a few at random here. We've got, um, you know, I/O that's not really aligned towards the block size or the, the block boundaries of the file system. We can have I/O from a supercomputer that's very high in concurrency. That's the number of threads that are concurrently writing to the backend disks. That I/O could be random, so there might be many, many threads writing randomly across very large files or a, a number of very large files. And finally, there could be uh, shared file access, so where many threads on the compute side are all writing into a single shared file on the file system side. Now, the problem is that some of these patterns, in fact, all these ones, can really destroy, sometimes dramatically, the performance of your application because the file system has certain characteristics and essentially they don't like being treated this way. They like to have beautiful, aligned, uh, correct concurrency, sequential, unique file per process I.O. in the ideal world. And if you do those things wrong, then you can really take your I.O. performance down from you know matching like what a peak benchmark would do to doing a handful of megabytes per second, even on a multi-gigasecond file system. So just to add a bit more depth, this is kind of a trend we're seeing, and it's been ongoing for the past 10, even 20 years, is the applications are getting more complex. And this complexity does um, have an outcome for the I.O. patterns, and then, of course, that has an outcome for how your file system uh, manages those I.O. patterns. Let's take a quick look at just some of those uh, changes, trends in the application development community. So firstly, multi-physics. So, uh, in fact, you know, weather forecasting can really, is, is, is a nice um, sort of HPC vertical because it does all of these things. So a modern weather forecasting code will do all of these things which are difficult for a file system. Uh, other areas, other verticals, seismic, uh, combustion, uh, nuclear physics, they all do some aspects of these, but weather is, is a great example of a, a problem, uh, a, a simulation problem that really does all these things. So multi-physics, workflows and ensembles, uh, adaptive rest refinement, uh, checkpoints, and high concurrency are all characteristics of what we see out there today. But as we go move forward in time, 
we get more of this. So multi-physics increases. We get more complex codes, which try to combine different aspects of physics. Uh, workflows and ensembles become uh, have wider take-up, so that you know, for man many reasons in, in this sort of weather forecasting area, then they use ensembles to really um, create some kind of Gaussian distribution of outcomes and make sure that the main forecast is in line with with the ensembles. Adaptive mesh refinement. This is used increasingly now to increase the efficiency and accuracy of of physics or simulation codes to make sure that we're um, concentrating our compute resources on the right area of a problem as it, as it continues in its runtime. So all these areas um, mean developers have to think about how they do I.O. And if they don't think about the I.O., then every one of these aspects here is going to represent a problem for your traditional file system. And what IME does is it really frees your applications and your developers from these file system issues by sitting in front of the file system and eliminating the I.O. problems associated with these I.O. types. So IME is you know, truly next generation. It's flash optimized, it's declustered, it's scale out, um, and it applies today to this high performance computing world. And what we do is we place a set of IME servers uh, in between the compute nodes, the applications, and the file system. And in IME world, we call the file system the backing file system. And this is very different from normal caching techniques. IME really is a cache, but now we haven't put some SSDs in the storage controllers or behind the file system. We've taken this scale-out array of NVM uh, accelerated servers We've placed them on the network, and logically, they're sitting right in between the applications and the file system. So when the application writes I.O., the IME software captures the I.O., and then we distribute it, we erasure code it, and spray it very fast across this uh, scale-out array of IME servers. Later on, of course, the I.O. will be passed on to the backing file system. And before we do that, we'll tidy up the I.O. to try and make it as sequential and pleasant as possible for the backing file system. So IME's got a lot of features, and I'll talk about a few of them, but essentially it's a scale-out flash cache that does read and write I.O. to accelerate the toughest I.O. problems in high-performance computing. Let's take a look at a couple of examples on slide five. So first, you know, we've it's very much software-defined, and we'll deploy IME on different bits of hardware as, you know, we move forward in trends in CPUs and non-volatile memory and hardware design. Today, we're using uh, something called the IME240, which is a 2U system with up to 24 uh, NVMe drives. And as you can see from this slide, we're doing just over 20 gig a second. In fact, about 23 and a half for writes and about 21 gigabytes a second for reads from this system, from this 2U unit. If you look on the right-hand side, you can just about see if we change the I.O. size and we, we just dial it down from large I.O. sizes like 1 meg to 128K downwards, down to 4K, then also something dramatic has happened. We're doing around 1.2 million IOPS for 4K random writes, and that equates to, again, about 23 gigabytes a second for random write throughput. Uh, so that's just one of these aspects that IME does extraordinarily well which a file system would not be able to. So you would not be able to get this kind of performance if you place the same SSDs into a file system um, because of file system constraints. So what IME has done is the SSD layer has given you the properties of the SSDs, but the IME software has relieved your applications from being exposed to the thicker 
uh, file system layers that can otherwise cause problems for I.O. Here's another view into a, a similar thing. So we ran this benchmark. This was running WARF, which is happens to be a weather benchmark as well. Ran this uh, earlier this year. And here what you can see is a graph showing the distribution profile of different IOs. So essentially, WARF is issuing a whole pile of IOs down to the file system or to IME. And what we're doing here is we're measuring how long it takes to get those IOs acknowledged. And you can see the red line is IME, and we get a very sharp Gaussian curve around four to five seconds. And for Lustre, there's a very, very long tail. You know, as we wait for the last hard drive to acknowledge the right, and that acknowledgement gets passed back to the client. Uh, so the performance consistency is extremely tight and sharp for IME, whereas for hard drive-based file systems, then that's certainly not the case. So I did mention this was quite sophisticated, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean complex. What we've, you know, at the heart of what we've done with IME is try to make a system that uh, really doesn't have to be acknowledged uh, by users. We're trying to avoid the idea of moving your data back and forth explicitly using complex user-based scripts. We don't want you to port your application and give you a new API to write to. So we provide POSIX and MPIO APIs, so no application porting required. The movement of data between IME and the backing file system, there's built-in mechanisms for that. It's a globally available namespace. That means all your clients see all the files, just like they would in a file system. And it's persistent across jobs. This isn't a temporary cache that disappears and appears um, for each individual job. It's just a completely global cache for the whole file system. So whilst we were about building this new software layer, um, you know, under the covers, we're using some very advanced technologies. We're using a, well, a DHT, a distributed hash table, we're using a log-structured file system, um, and lots of other smarts inside there, which make it um, very appropriate for this Flash era. Now, just to pick out three of those features, um, we support adaptive I/O, dial-in resilience, and well, like we call them lightning rebuilds, very fast rebuilds. Adaptive I/O works like this: you know, the IME clients are always monitoring. Um, how quickly the servers, the server layer, are, are swallowing the IOs that they're being sent. If the clients see that a server is demonstrating high latencies, then it can write to a different server temporarily. It can change a portion of the IO it sends to that server to other servers to work around problems as they emerge. So bottlenecks that emerge in real time on a running system will be automatically worked around by IME. And that really gets over a you know a long known problem with traditional file systems, which are highly deterministic, which is that you know if a disk is going slow or a server is going slow, then the whole file system will slow down. So that's that thing that problem will not happen with IME. Secondly, on dial-in resilience, you know, we used to a storage system, you know, being installed and set up with let's say uh, RAID 6 uh, or even with declustered RAID. And that's a, you know, a system-side operation that covers all your data. With IME, things are a bit different. Uh, there is a default, so users don't have to be involved in this. But the erasure coding is performed uh, by IME on a per-file or from a per-client basis. So if you want to have 8 plus 2 or 8 plus 3 or 15 plus 3, or you don't want any erasure coding at all for some reason, um, then you can do that. You have those tools. You can dial that in from your application. And then finally, 
everything is declustered in IME. And that means the, the rebuilds are really fast. So we're also using SSDs, and they're pretty fast too. Uh, this means that we can rebuild a one terabyte drive in about four minutes. So I've talked a bit about already about how IME tries to solve some of the I.O. challenges that a file system would break down with. Um, but So that's certainly so number one thing I want you to keep in mind is that if you're doing random I.O., shared file I.O., uh, high concurrency I.O., we're going to do a whole lot better than your file system, you know, even if the file system were populated with SSDs. The second part of the benefit of IME is that it is a cache. So that means you don't have to blow your whole budget on SSDs. You can buy a conventional file system with hard drives such as Lustre or GPFS, and then you can add, let's say, 100 terabytes, 200 terabytes of flash cache in the form of a IME scale-out uh, cache. And that means for many combinations of performance and capacity, you can get just economic benefits just from the nameplate numbers. So if you're just looking about the 100 gigabytes a second or the two petabytes, you can get economic benefits just by architecting in this cache. And the cache then meets your performance and the hard drives meet your capacity requirements. And decoupling those two, as I said, can bring you benefits in the economics of your system. So here's an example I took. Um, so here we've got a problem where uh, we've got, let's say, a customer requirement for 100 gigabytes a second and two petabytes of capacity. By using IME, we can reduce the footprint of a pure file system, pure hard drive implementation by a factor of three. And we get a benefits of six times the performance density, uh, about 100 times the right IOPS, uh, many-fold times, around 100 times. It really varies from 10 to 1,000 times, in fact, of the shared file performance with half the power consumption, one-third the spindle count, and as I said, around a 25% reduction in cost. So beyond the nice I.O. attributes of IME, we get some fairly basic uh, economic benefits for certain classes of problem shape. And that's it. That's it. I'm going to tie up there and uh, let you follow up with a few difficult questions, Rich. <laughs> okay, well... Thanks, James. You know, the, the first question that comes to mind in, in, in your last slide there, just the uh, the example, how do you size an IME? Is it just a simple ratio of how much you want to store or the IOPS you want to achieve? Yeah, nothing simple in life, is it? Um, <laughs> so it does depend on, on use case. So I'd say this is looks like a classic solution right here. We've got uh, something like 100 terabytes of SSDs. We've got two petabytes of backing file system. And our backing file system is doing like about, you know, one-seventh, one-eighth of the performance of the front-end cache. So this will be a very good general-purpose research system. But there are particular use cases like checkpointing or for single-purpose application environments where it might look quite different. So if you're running a seismic application, um, for example, then we might size the flash cache to fit in, you know, a certain working data set. If you're doing a weather problem, then, you know, your daily forecast probably fits in to 10 or 20 terabytes, in which case we can size the cache based on that. And then in the general purpose checkpointing case, then, you know, the usual rule of thumb is to make that flash cache area something like two times the total footprint of the memory of the compute side. So there's different rules that apply. Um, there are 
nice general purpose rules of thumb that we can work with on standard sort of general purpose research clusters in universities, for example. Well, that, that's great. So, just, James, you mentioned you could do GPFS or, or Lustre on the other side of things there. So does that mean you're able to go into an existing HPC uh, setup and introduce this cache and, you know, bring the benefits to it? Very good point. Yes, we are doing just that. So, in fact, you know, most of the deployments have been, been you know, new ones where yep. we've shipped a file system as well. But there's really nothing stopping us um, taking, uh, you know, a slightly aging file system and giving it a new lease of life by inserting a layer of flash cache in front of it. Wow, very, very slick. So, so what comes next for IME? You've got this this two U building block. Uh, you got all these, uh, you know, growing needs for I/O as we move to exascale. How do you scale this up? You know, for these machines that might be 50 times faster in the future well so in fact there's a problem with scale up and scale down yeah. so um what we want to do is make this very general purpose and also meet the demands of the most troublesome problematic challenging exascale uh, workloads now scaling down you know we even now we're looking at smaller devices to bring this starting point so this thing starts at around 100 gig a second right now mm -hmm. we want to bring that down to around 40 50 in the next couple of months so it's software defined so we can take another piece of hardware off the shelf and test it out and see if it fits and um we can probably have make the make the starting uh cost and the starting performance more amenable to even like more standard mid-range uh, clusters and environments for exascale you know, we already have systems out there that do uh, well over a terabyte a second uh, with a petabyte of cache. Um, and they really do meet those challenges of Exascale, even today, pretty well. Mm -hmm. So by implementing a cache and these spindles, we've dramatically reduced the pow power. And we've hit, we've really meet head on some of those critical challenges of Exascale. So, you know, other approaches have been to change the application and give new APIs and use some kind of object API. We've really not done that. We've we've taken away some of the constraints of the file system mm -hmm. to allow these applications to do this shared file performance, randomized performance with with no modifications. So I think we're ready now. There's there's hardware changes we can do, and that'll happen over time with this software-defined system. So we'll be taking advantage of new uh, NVM devices as they come out, new hardware, new processors, and everything's changing there. So in fact, in the next 12 months, we'll see new options across the board there. Well, terrific. Well, James, this is a, an exciting technology, and I, I think I finally get it now after uh, uh, you know, <laughs> looking at this uh, for years. This is a great uh, presentation to kind of bring it all together. So I want to thank you once again for coming on the show today. No, thank you, Rich. Okay, folks, that's it for the Rich Report. Stay tuned for more news and information on high-performance computing.